Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani. And if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. 45 years in journalism between the two of us, over 35 covering sports in the H. And Sean, before we get to the Texans and a couple of other things, we're going to start off with a lot about Lance McCullers because he's definitely going to miss the start of the season, maybe more. So I guess when you brag about your pitching staff, and your pitching depth after Verlander exits the building, know your history because us old-time baseball fans, Sean, we know better. Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting couple of days, right, after I single-handedly jinxed uh, Lance McCullers a few days ago. Um, I don't even really know what I'd say. Oh, I know what I'd said. I said, hey, this is the first time in a couple of years, you know, we might have him for opening day healthy on the roster where he's not coming back from injury. That's what I said. And then now we're not. So my bad on that. But the more I think about Lance McCullers and this uh, forearm strain, sometimes those kinds of things can be a trigger or can be an indicator rather for another more serious type of injury and for a guy who's coming off some arm trouble obviously over the course of the last you know couple of years they want to be careful with this guy so I tend to believe in my mind that at this stage maybe this is a little bit more precautionary for a guy who has sustained his fair share of injuries in his throwing arm over the course of the last couple of years Maybe this is something that we should be getting a little bit more used to with Lance McCullers that, hey, any little tinge or twing or here, ding, dent here and there, they're going to be a little precautious with them. And for a guy that they paid $85 million to for the course of a seven-year contract, maybe that's just the best uh, way they see fit. But what was also maybe a little bit concerning to me, aside from Lance McCullers this week, was Dusty Baker comments. You know, and he said, well, hey, yeah, I'd like to have gotten a veteran pitcher, but we didn't have a general manager at the time. We talked about, I think, and I felt pretty comfortable with the fact that, hey, yeah, Justin Verlander is leaving. Wherever he goes, it doesn't matter. If this was any other year, that might smart a little bit more. But, like, there was – it was almost painless. It was like no Band-Aid approach needed. It's not a big deal because you saw just how good this pitching staff – could be without Justin Verlander. But when you hear Dusty Baker say, yeah, you know, I wish we would have gotten a veteran pitcher in here because that's what we need. That's what I'd like. It's kind of twofold. A old school manager like Dusty always wants more ammo in his arsenal. But then two, he sees the value that a veteran presence like Justin Verlander has had with this organization over the course of the last five, six years. Yeah, a couple of things. I'll just go back to what you were talking about with not being too concerned about Lance because it's what we're going to deal with. But I just got the feeling that Lance looked concerned about uh, when he was talking about it. So there's that. Uh, you're talking about Dusty want another pitcher. It's been different, remember, Sean, the last couple of years because, you know, everything got pushed back because of the pandemic one year. And then we had this sort of threat or not even a threat we the season got pushed back because of the big contract stuff uh last year so yeah. i think that might have been lost on astro fans that we you would typically get that kind of veteran pitcher earlier in the off season where like remember we got jake odorizzi towards the end but that was because of other factors that were taking place at that time 
Yeah, good old Jake Odorizzi, man. I know he's had his detractors here in the city of Houston, but I really appreciated that guy. I, I thought he did a solid job and maybe a little bit of a victim of circumstance when you're constantly comparing him to guys that are putting up just ridiculous numbers like a Justin Verlander or Christian Javier, Framber. I mean, or any any one of those starters, you know, in the Astros front line of the rotation in the last couple of years. I appreciated the value that, you know, Jake Odorizzi brought. Um, didn't, you know, necessarily appreciate the way he handled some things, but boy, it really would be nice to have a veteran presence in there. However, it, it's still an embarrassment of riches. I mean, is it not? I mean, you don't have that, that veteran presence like a Justin Verlander or even a Jake Odorizzi right now on this roster or Garrett Cole for that matter, you know, that we got used to for a couple of years, but you do have some young promising talent. Um, a guy who made two starts for you this past year in relief appearances looked absolutely stellar and should give you all reason for excitement, and that's Hunter Brown. Well, the um, problem with Hunter Brown is, you know, he's not ready to go a full season and a postseason if that's what you're planning to do with him. You know, you're, you've got five starting pitchers, yes, with Hunter Brown. Without mm -hmm. Lance McCullers, you have five starting pitchers, yes. But he just doesn't. He doesn't have the arm strength as a guy to do that. And, you know, there is one guy that is a veteran starter. He's not somebody that anybody's going to be excited about, but he's had several starts over the last few years for the Astros. And he's, you know, been out of the bullpen a lot as well. And that's Brandon Belak. You know, I, it's not. Somebody's a guy. Yeah, that's not going to get you excited. But. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, Belak's a guy. Seth Martinez is a guy. What about J.P. France? You know, like you're looking at the end of the day for a guy that can come in, you know, and make some starts here or there. And, you know, for an organization that, like I said, you know, has some young, promising talent from a pitching standpoint, you do, as you mentioned, have a couple of guys in Brandon Belak and even a Seth Martinez who I know I, for one, was – not shocked, but I mean, I side-eyed it a little bit that, hey, you know, Seth Martinez, every time the guy took the mound last year, it seemed, I mean, he delivered. If it was a guy like, hey, you know, we're getting beat up a little bit. We need you to go eat some innings. He was there for that. Um, hey, we need a spot start here because of an injury or because of, you know, we're playing eight, nine, ten games in a row. We need to give some guys some rest, push somebody back, accommodate Justin Verlander, you know, who a few times last season was going off of, you know, six days, maybe seven days rest between starts. He was there for that. Yeah, I don't um, know about his starting background. I mean, he's a bullpen guy. I definitely feel like his depth. But, I mean, is he a guy that was starting a lot in his minor league career? I, don't, I have to go back and look and see how many starts he'd had, but I'm just kind of basing my opinion off of how he was used with the Astros. He was a long relief guy. You know, Belak can eat some innings up as well. Routinely would go out there for three, four innings at a clip. That might be a day in which you can get a little creative if you're Dusty Baker, um, where you would start a Seth Martinez. You would start a Brandon Belak you know, and have them go the first three innings. It's a bullpen day. We've seen that before, and the Astros have enacted it. I mean, they haven't gone full-on Tampa Bay Ray style with it, you know, with the regularity, but we have seen it. And for a staff that, you know, now doesn't have Justin Verlander, but has a guy in Lance McCullers whom presumably you don't like it, but you just might have to accept it. You're going to have to treat him, I don't want to say with kid gloves, but just with a little bit more extra precaution going forward until – he proves that he can keep his body, his arm, 
you know, up to the standards of a seven-year, $85 million contract, up to the standards of a team that is looking to make yet again another deep postseason run. Yeah, Seth Martinez, we're going to talk to one of our experts on the Astros minor league system, and he can tell us a little bit more about Seth Martinez, but we're going to do that on Monday. So make sure everybody comes and checks that out. And I did a Houston Sports Talk poll on Twitter that I want to get to, but a quick reminder, the best way to support us is subscribe and comment on YouTube. You can listen on the run by subscribing on your favorite podcast. But uh, Sean, I asked Twitter, who's the most frustrating, always injured Houston athlete? The candidates that I threw out there, and there's probably a lot more than I didn't even put up because there's a long list of guys, but Lance McCullers, of course, Will Fuller, Yao Ming, and Arian Foster. Who do you think won the poll, Sean? This was a tough choice. Uh, We had, I think, maybe 250 votes on that. All right, let me see. Let me work backwards. You said Arian Foster, Yao Ming, Lance McCullers, and who was the other guy? Well, obviously Will Fuller, yeah. I mean, uh, Will Fuller. Yeah, Ah, you know, Will Fuller. Uh, Who did fans choose? I'm going to go, you know, there's always recency bias. Who was the first guy again? Lance McCullers. I'm going to go Lance McCullers. You would think recency bias would have affected it, but, you know, Rockets Twitter is pretty strong, and Yao Ming won easily. Wow, Yao. (laughs) 56% was the number. Lance McCullers, 23% at number two. Fuller, 11%. And Foster had 9%. Sean, you can argue that if Lance McCullers wasn't injured in the 2019 World Series or the 2021 World Series, maybe the Astros have two more titles. We're going to get to the other players in this poll, but think about having Garrett Cole and Lance McCullers both available for game seven. Even A.J. Hinch isn't dumb enough to ignore both of them to go to Will Harris, is he? Well, I don't know. I mean, you had the best pitcher in all of baseball just (laughs) chilling in the bullpen and he didn't use them. I don't know why you would go with, you know, maybe a top 10 guy outside of that. I mean, you could have had Cy Young in the bullpen. (laughs) I don't know well, I think because there was a couple of innings left, maybe it was in his head. Well, let's I'm going to let Will Harris get these last couple outs in this inning. And then I'll bring Garrett Cole because he's, you know, so used to starting come in fresh. But if you've got Lance McCullers and Garrett Cole, you can finish the inning off with the Lance McCullers and then bring in Garrett Cole in to finish off the game. You're speaking logically, Robert. And, you know, sometimes you have to operate illogically, that's even the wrong word. Sometimes you just have to lay it out all on the line. You know, go back to 2000, was it 2004, 2005? I don't remember if it was their World Series year or not, but that great 18-inning game when Chris Burke walked it off. Well, who finished the ball game um, in that scenario? It was Roger freaking Clemens. He was the last guy in the pen, and he came in and threw three innings of one-hit ball. Well, he he had no choice. That that was that had-no-choice thing because they were just flat out of – of pitchers and the, Fair, the whole yeah. Roger Clemens thing was there. I heard a, a story from Bill Brown on Astro line this, this uh, winter that I, I just had never heard. I don't know if you've heard this one, but he had gone underneath the uh, Astros, uh, you know, into their um, where they throw back underneath the stadium. Yeah. And he, he threw about 70 pitches like hard sweating, 70 pitches to his son uh, he told them he would be ready, and so he starts to get ready, and then one of his sons hits hits a hard one off of him, and then he gets upset, and he starts cranking it, figuring there's no way he's going to get in this ball game. This is like late late in the ball game, late in the in the and not even extra innings yet. We're late in the ni- eighth, seventh, eighth, ninth inning, and he starts cranking. He throws about seventy pitches 
And he never told that, of course, to Garner that he had done that. But Garner's like, hey, we need you. And then he hadn't eaten anything all day. It's a whole long story about that, too. That's so and, great. And they had to go. The guys, all the guys uh, in the bullpen usually have a snack bag or whatever. And he goes in the bullpen in the fourth, 13, 14 inning. And he's like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm real hungry. I haven't had anything to eat all day. He wasn't expecting to pitch. And he, I don't know what had happened, but he's like, where's the snacks? And he, the guys uh, are like, yeah, we threw the snacks up to the fans, like in the two or three innings ago, because we were done with them. That's fantastic. He's, he's like, what? And he had to have some somebody go run and get him some bananas or something like that, just so he had something to eat because he didn't know what was. And then he goes, what, th- what was it, three or four innings in that game? Three innings, yeah. I think it was three innings, one hit. It was it was something spectacular. I mean, uh, <laughs> I was there for that game. 2004, 2005, I mean, it was one of those years. I want to say it was 2005. but I was there at the game, and it was 2005. Um, it, yeah, it was unbelievable. That game to me is so memorable because, you know, we thought it was over and then Berkman hits that huge home run late in the game. Yeah. Osmus too. Yeah. Osmus had, had a big one also, but, um, yeah, it was yeah I'll never, I'll never forget that game because I went with my uncle and he left in the seventh inning and actually made it back home to Austin <laughs> before the game was over. And I said, man, I'll bet you never leave a sporting event early in your life again. And he hasn't, <laughs> at least baseball. Texans, you know, they'll do it to you. Yeah, you you, you got to learn that lesson long, long, long ago in sports because <laughs> stuff happens. Um, let's go back to that list, though. The guys that I mentioned and Arian Foster, the Texans guys that I mentioned, they, they were at the back of the list. But Arian Foster missed two Texan playoff appearances. People forget about that because of those injuries. Basically had a Hall of, Hall of Fame career shortened. Everybody knew what Arian meant to the Texans. Um, I, I, I know that, but I'm not sure Texans fans quite understood Will Fuller's importance and what he meant to that Texans offense, Sean. I mean, that was huge. Yeah, I, maybe not. Um, you know, at that point in time when Will Fuller was here, it's, it, it almost felt like uh, the cynicism was starting to, you know, began to set in, you know, at that point in time. And Will Fuller's track record of injury as a Houston Texan is well-documented um, and frustrated fans, you know, on a week-in and week-out basis. But I think he opened all- up that whole offense, you know, when he got yeah. out there, it it made the running backs have more room. You, yeah. you got more room underneath. I mean, I just think people sleep a little bit on the fact that this was a guy that, you know, maybe if he stays healthy, he's a pro bowler because he could have hundred yard, games at the drop of a hat you know score touch he was a touchdown score with those games and that was the era when we had Deshaun too uh, towards the end of his era and and you know so he was huge yeah no you're you're right I, I think probably it's a case that a lot of fans and even media types don't pay enough attention to the value that he did have offensively um it's not talked about enough because everything that transpired. So in hindsight, maybe it, at the end of the day, it's really not that important, not that big a deal. Maybe if he does stay healthy, it's not enough to change like the trajectory of the franchise, so to speak, because everything still would have happened with Deshaun Watson. But, you know, maybe Bill O'Brien doesn't go, you know, Dr. Evil um, in, in the whole bit. I don't know, but it is something to think about. I have to admit, though, I totally forgot about the significance of Arian Foster's injuries as a Houston Texan. It just, in my mind, it was like, I thought the Texans had gotten everything they possibly could out of him. And then he went to, what was it, Miami and 
you know, kind of flamed out or whatever, but you are right. I forgot about the two playoff appearances. I mean, that was just out of sight, out of mind. That's huge. Yao Ming's a good one. Lance McCullers is a big one. I, when you asked me the question initially, my mind immediately went to two former Rockets, and it was Chris Paul and Tracy McGrady. T-Mac would probably would have been another good one. You could have put in a, a fourth or fifth guy up there on that poll, and he would have well, gotten some votes. Yeah, so somebody mentioned Tracy. Somebody mentioned Tracy McGrady. Tracy McGrady is a guy that I think of, but when I say always injured, I mean always injured. Tracy McGrady basically, when he was with the Rockets, he just got injured, and then that was it. Like he, he the injuries came. If you look at games played, he was up there every year. He he played. He showed up for the playoffs. He was there, and then that one off season, or that one postseason, I should say, with where him and Yao both got hurt against the Lakers, and then the they lost to the Lakers in Game Seven without those two guys and without mm-hmm. the Kimbe Mutombo, and that Lakers team goes on to win the championship, and the Rockets yeah. almost beat them without those two guys, and 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 you know they had like Ron Artest and Carl Landry and Kyle Lowry and all those guys. They almost beat them, but I mean his career was just over with at that time. Now Chris Paul for sure, is somebody that I think of. But, you know, it just it felt like it was like he got injured that one time. I mean, he wasn't here that long. And he got injured the one time where, you know, we could have won the championship. Absolutely a huge injury. I don't necessarily think of him as always injured because he got injured then. The next year, he just never quite was the same. And it felt like he needed almost that year to recover from whatever it was, the groin or the hamstring or something like that because he's pretty much been the – you know, pretty consistently playing. I mean, once he gets to the playoffs, he gets in trouble. Now his playoff record and getting hurt is terrible. And that's why when everybody's all confident about this Phoenix Suns team with, you know, having Chris Paul and Booker and Durant, and all, I'm like, right. do not count on Chris Paul making it through a postseason, especially at age 38, especially because he hasn't been able to do it in almost a decade. Yeah, it's a great point. But when you are 38 and you're at the end of the line and you have such a prime opportunity to do that. I mean, maybe he's able to push himself, you know, to the brink where he wasn't willing necessarily to do that before. That's going to be an interesting follow. I'm, I'm excited about that. And what Durant, he's supposed to make his uh, debut with the Phoenix Suns. I think at some point this week, maybe Monday night or something like that, that's going to be a must see TV. I'm excited for that. It's good to get him out of Brooklyn that, you know, I, I, I never liked Brooklyn or when they were New Jersey, but I especially did not like them when they were employing, that trio of Irving, Durant, and Harden. I feel I feel really happy for a Brooklyn fan right now, um, but it makes me like Kevin Durant a little bit more. At least he becomes a little bit more intriguing now that he's a Phoenix son. Yeah, I, I don't think you should feel happy for Brooklyn fan because they really haven't been able to have nice things for like 20 years. And this is the second time they've just been left high and dry with you know, going after a bunch of guys and losing all their draft picks. <laughs> uh, you know, they're losing all their draft picks, but I mean, it's... You know, it's the NBA. It's so it's so easy to kind of recoup some of that stuff. It just kind of depends on what you're willing to give up. I mean, we're seeing draft picks traded five, six years in advance. Um, they'll be fine. I'm just yeah. glad for them that they get those three knuckleheads out of there. Yeah, it's, well, easy to recoup, but you're, it's hard to get your own picks. And your own picks are typically when you're trying to rebuild are going to be the most valuable because you're going to suck and those picks are going to be high. It's it's To me, it's hard to rebuild in the in the NBA much harder than the NFL where you get a ton of picks and you can get guys in the second, third, fourth, and fifth. And some of those guys can sometimes turn out to be some of your best players. Whereas the NBA, you need that one or two guys. And those guys are so hard to find. It's like finding a needle in it. That's where the Rockets are right now. We're trying to 
find those type of guys and, you know, developing those guys and it takes time and all that. So it, it, it's hard to get back up there. Really uh, you're right. It, well, solely through the draft, especially when you're trying to rebuild solely through the draft and acquire young talent for sure. But something tells me that uh, if, if, if we're to learn anything from recent history in Brooklyn and really just the NBA, because there's a lot more teams, you know, that are probably willing to spend some money and go above the luxury tax threshold because they don't want to wait two, three, maybe four years in a rebuild acquiring, you know, young talent via the draft. They're going to go out and buy some guys. So it'll be an interesting follow. I think the NBA has got a lot of problems, man, to be honest with you. And hopefully the Rockets become relevant again this time next year. Hopefully we're talking about them playing some meaningful games. But the NBA as a whole has a lot to fix, I think. The one guy in that poll that we haven't talked about is Yao Ming, and he's one of my top 10 all-time favorite athletes, not yeah. just because I love watching his style of play, Sean. It was also about who he was as a person, nice guy, humble, funny. He's right there with guys like Jose Lima, Springer, Altuve, and Caminetti on the Q factor of Houston athletes. And you know what? It's weird. Tell me if I'm wrong. I almost feel like already – People forget about Yao Ming, you know, in Houston, that maybe it's because of the injury. Maybe it's because they they were so close, you know, and they just couldn't feel the team stay healthy enough to get them to a finals or make a deep Western Conference final run, you know, with with regularity. I, I, I don't know. Like, it, it almost feels, you know, elementary to just say, like, Yao Ming was one of the best you know, that there ever was. He was tremendous, not just because of his size, but because of his size, you know, to see a a skilled shooter, a skilled ball handler, a skilled guy in the low block with the footwork and defensively what he was doing. It was literally like two weeks ago, somebody made a statement or maybe posted something on Twitter and I got in a little Yao Ming wormhole and I went back to that first game. Do you remember how excited people were to watch Yao Ming versus Shaquille O'Neal and Yao blocked Shaq's first three shots and then dunked over him and then went like full on dream shake, you know, in the first quarter on Shaq. I mean, it was a thing of beauty and what an incredible start to a career that unfortunately you felt like it could have lasted another four or five years, but because of his size, because of his foot injuries, it just wasn't in the cards. Um, but I, I do feel like people forget about how special he was and how fun some of those Rocket teams really were with him on it when he was clicking on all cylinders. I'll never forget what was the playoff series where he's walking to the concourse because he's injured and there's only a few minutes left in the game. And he says, nah, get off of me, training staff. I'm going back out there and I'm playing. He went back out and played and balled out, helped the Rockets win a ball game. And I think that was probably the year, correct me if I'm wrong, because it all runs together, that they they might have had their best shot to win the whole darn thing with Yao Ming. Yeah, listen to this Houston Sports Talk Classic clip from your old 6'10 co-host, Barry Warner, about Yao when I talked to him a few years ago. What was the guy that was your favorite athlete to cover in, in, in your time in Houston sports. Unequivocally, there's not even, there's, there's one name and one name only of, of the hundreds of athletes that I covered. Yao Ming, the single most fascinating individual that I ever had the pleasure of covering. Not the greatest athlete, but the single most fascinating person. What's so unique about Yao 
as we would spend hours talking about non-basketball things. He had a room that was his workout room, a state-of-the-art gym where he had machinery for every part of his body and specifically for his feet that were specially designed. And he had an Olympic-sized swimming pool where he could run in there and with a treadmill. When he was injured, which was quite often, unfortunately, during his short career with the Rockets, he would put a king-size bed in a room that had all these Hall of Fame pictures. He did not want to go out and be ostentatious. So he had a man that I introduced him to, Andy Yao, his best friend still today. And Andy would go to charity affairs, or Andy would go to a store, a memorabilia place, and buy all these pictures of NBA greats. And they would be proudly displayed. And there had to be, Robert, conservatively, about $700,000 worth of pictures. I mean, from George Mikan to black and white photos of Wilt and Bill Russell and to Jerry West and Bob Cousy. And I mean, just a literal, literal collage and tribute to the greats of basketball. So I asked him one day, we're sitting by the pool. I said, my friend, if there was a fire that broke out, what would you run in to get out of all this great collection, I mean, who would you? What would the, what would the the three or four pictures that you would have to take? And he goes, "Oh, that could all burn." I go, "What?" He goes, "Oh yeah, that those are just things that could always replace those." He said, "What you did not see is upstairs in my office. I have two frames, specially made, with pins from the Olympic Villages in two thousand in 2004. Those are priceless. He said you had no idea. And he used to call me Quanto Loto, which means short, bald, old man. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, Quanto Loto, those are priceless. I can never get those again. Sounds like a MasterCard commercial, Sean. Those are priceless. (laughs) Yeah, man, always with the stories. I've heard that one before. Um, he's told many, many times about, you know, the burning building uh, hypothetical, but yeah, that's, it's, it's fascinating stuff, man. And we need to hear more of that because I, I really do. I, what do you think? I mean, I don't feel like we talk enough about Yao Ming and what he'd meant to the Houston Rockets, not just here with a local fan base, obviously globally, but just to the game of basketball people wanted to see him people craved to see him i mean it started out almost like you know he was a a, a circus show but once you saw that the guy could absolutely ball i mean it was it was a spectacle yeah the thing that i remember uh when i was listening back to this interview i had forgotten until barry mentioned it was the stuff that he would have specially training with for his feet and we know about Yao's feet issues and when I talked with Frank our Rockets expert with Rockets Chop Shop on Tuesday we were talking about this piece that um, they had done on Wembyana and Wembyana they're doing all this special stuff with his feet they talked about and they're working his big toe he works his big toe between uh, ever, or before every single game so he can 
not have injuries. And it's the, this big toe is just such a valuable part. If you're a seven foot four guy to your whole foot structure. And when Barry uh, tells that story, he talks about that. And I, I'd forgotten that Barry was, uh, you know, talking about that during that interview. Hold on. Is it a big toe machine? You know, does he, does he put his big toe in like a little, in a little loop and it just, it kind of works it out. Just a little. <laughs> how's that whole thing work? <laughs> He's doing, uh, they're, I think they're pulling it or doing stretches. I don't even know. I forgot. I can't remember exactly because the story is about. Hey, man. It's long. I, they need to bring back uh, sports science. You know, like the little uh, five to ten minute special they would have back in the day on ESPN. You know, the sports science guy. You know, he'd come in and, you know, it would highlight like a player in any sport, whatever. They need to do that with like Wimby. You know, like sports science today. Wimbyama and his big toe. It's the most valuable big toe in the NBA. <laughs> I need to see that. <laughs> it's a big deal. I'm telling you. I mean, we 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 saw it with Yao. And, and speaking of sports, what ifs, Sean? There was a great under the radar story this week with the Astros. The organization names Joe Thon as their new Double yeah, A manager in Corpus Christi. And for those old timer Astros fans wondering. Yes, that's Dickie Thon's son. And for those who don't know Dickie Thon, because it's been a long time, I understand that. It's almost 40 years now. In 1983, Thon was an all-star shortstop in his second full season as a major leaguer. He was 25, which is the same age as Jeremy Pena this past year. He was also seventh in the MVP race with a 798 OPS. And for the Astrodome, that was crazy. 798 OPS was crazy good for the Astrodome, especially for shortstops back in that era that weren't as offensive as they are today. And the next season, Sean, he gets beamed in the head, was never the same. And I called Dickie Thon Correa before Correa. Wow, that's strong. Yeah. You know, what year was that? Do you remember when he got beamed in the 84 head? 84 was when he got that, the next year, 84. 83 was he had that great season 40 years ago, and then he got beamed the next year. Oh, that's phenomenal. Eight, well, you know, I mean – yeah, who knows? I mean, uh, a star on the rise, you know, I, he was, I was, you know, only a handful of years old when, when he kind of came in at 84, I was two, but for a guy that put together what a 14, 15 year career, most of it with the Astros played for a couple of three different other teams, but that's pretty phenomenal that you incur an injury like that. So young in your career and you're able to kind of scratch it out another nine, 10 years is pretty impressive. I was just kind of looking at some of his stats. I mean, um, yeah, you know, there's some lean years in there too, for sure. But well, no, I mean, basically after the injury, he literally was not this, you know, it screwed him up. He was, was not handling, you know, the ball coming at him anymore. You know, it mm -hmm. just, it, it had freaked him out and, and he had headaches and you got to read about Dickie Thon because it, it, it's a really sad story. Cause he was, he was going to do that. And that, and that was, you know, you look at before that season, and, you know, he had that, like I said, that incredible season. That was just his second full season. There, the numbers before that, he just didn't have a whole lot of games. He was a young kid trying to yeah. get, get, you know, get his feet under him and stuff like that. But Bill Doran, who was his double play partner with the Astros at that time, Bill Doran said Dickie Thon was his best friend. And those guys were really close. Of course, Bill's going to be going in the Astros Hall of Fame in a few months. Yeah, very, very cool stuff. It's pretty remarkable. He finished seventh in MVP voting in 1983, that one all-star year that he had. And then yeah. and then also consider that, I mean, there just wasn't, I mean, we just, we're used to it. We're numb to it now that there's an A-Rod and a Correa and, 
Garcia Para, and there's all these guys that hit the ball out of the ballpark as shortstop. That's just, it, dude. It just didn't happen back then. It just yeah. there was nobody. Yeah, and twenty bombs that year. But do you remember a conversation we had about a I don't know month, month and a half ago where we were talking about old Astros um, and some fan favorites? You know, Dickie Thon is right up there with Jose Cruz and. Uh, you know, there's a handful of others. When you talk about like the Astros of yesteryear, you know, the great players, a lot of fan favorites from the 70s, the 80s, you know, when they wore the really fun tequila sunrise uniforms that people love now that the Astros obviously started to kind of bring back the flair of. But Dickie Thon is he's got one of the greatest names in baseball. For me, that's not an era of Astros baseball that I'm able to really pull from because I was so young. But it was so fun because those names live on today for the ones that I even just mentioned. So, yeah, I mean, a great story. I'm looking forward to uh, uh, to looking at his uh, career a little bit closer now. Um, it's one that I kind of took for granted. You know, I got Dickie Thon cards, probably five, six, seven of them tucked in binders somewhere. But it's just like you see him and you're like, yeah, he was a good player, you know, cool name. But I don't know if we really appreciate what he was. Yeah, good luck to his son, Joe, and Corpus Christi. I, I can't wait to. Young, you know, right? See, was he, he had to be like mid-late 30s. He looked really young, his son. Yeah, I mean, I, I I assume he's he can't be that old. I mean, you know, Dickie, unless he had him, unless he had his kid when he was really young. But, uh, yeah, I just w- w- hope he does well with the hooks. And, you know, let's move to the Texans because, you know, they hired an offensive line coach, Chris Strausser, kind of under the – Radar a little bit as the week's gone along. There's been a lot of moves around the NFL. The Texans, everybody, I think it, once you got over the OC and the DC, everybody kind of moved on, Sean. But mm-hmm. uh, Strasser, he'd been the O-line coach for the Colts the last four seasons. They had one of the best O-lines in the NFL the first two seasons he was there, but then regressed his third year when left tackle Anthony Costanzo retired. This past year, the Colts allowed 60 sacks, which was the second most in the league. So that scared me when I read that stat. And that's the second most sacks allowed in Colts history. Also, Texans, remember, they only gave up 38 sacks this past season, 10th best in the league. Colts rookie left tackle Bernard Raymond had a 71 pass block grade, which was second among nine rookie starting tackles this year. So that, that was part of it is they were having a sort of rotating deal at left tackle before Bernard Raymond sort of took over the job and solidified him a little bit second half of the year. They were definitely better the second half of the year, but it's important to know, Sean, that even though their O-line struggled early, they were 10th in the NFL in pass blocking the second half of last year. So I think you could confuse things if you start looking at, you know, how the Colts offensive line was his first two years and there being a regression, but there were factors like Costanzo and this rookie tackle for sure. Yeah. But I mean, it's never just one thing. I mean, uh, uh, Every coach, regardless, position coach, head coach, coordinator, doesn't matter, um, you know, in football or even what sport. I mean, they're going to tell you the same thing, you know, in every sport. Like, you're only as good as your players, too. And I would just be interested to know, like, how many of those sacks, you said 60 sacks given up by Indianapolis's offensive line. How many of those were actually on Matt Ryan and some of the other quarterbacks that they employed? Yeah, they, they said 41 of them were on the offensive line. 19 of them were on the quarterbacks, from what I remember reading about that. Yeah, right, that's fair. I mean, it's, um, I'm glad somebody looked at that. Um, and then I'll even say this, 35 years of, uh, coaching experience. I don't know that he's been in the NFL, but maybe for about half of that time, he's got a lot of college experience uh, with Mazel. Does Chris Strouser, but 
um, that that was an interesting hire for me because before they brought him in, the Texans were so young across the board. And it's one of the things that still kind of concerns me to a degree is that, you know, you look at guys like, um, you know, D'Amico Ryans, who's obviously only 38, their quarterback coach, Gerard Johnson, 34, uh, Bobby Slowick, 35. They're very, very young. I was hoping they would bring in somebody that, um, you know, has a play calling experience in the NFL before that is a little older, that is that veteran uh, mind, so to speak. You know, offensive line, you and I just talked about it earlier this week, how vital, how important it is when we were talking about, hey, should they look at a free agent center, um, how, how key that is, particularly, you know, coming in and learning a new system, the familiarity with that. Um, I, I, I think, you know, a guy like Chris Strauser, who has 35 years of coaching under his belt, can be a type of guy like that for D'Amico Ryan, somebody to kind of lean on from an offensive standpoint um, in, the, in the trenches. Um, look at things. So it, I, I like the hire. I'm excited about it, actually. Um, and I'm, I'm also excited, too. You know, we were talking the other day about some position groups that hadn't been filled yet um, from a coaching standpoint. Texans also bringing back Danny Barrett, their running back coach, which I find to be pretty funny. Um, I'm happy for Danny. I think he's a really good coach. Uh, Damian Pierce spoke of him very highly all season long. But this is like the only guy that the Texans have. Not even Frank Ross has had to endure. Bill O'Brien, uh, David Culley, Lovey Smith, and now his fourth coach is David Barrett or Danny Barrett on now. It's, I would love to pick his brain um, and see him spill the beans one day. I know he won't, but the things that he must have experienced with the dysfunction as an organization over the course of the last three years must be something. I'm waiting for the book. I, I can't, can't wait for that. One day. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you, I mean, you're a coach and you keep an eye on the fact that, you know, all these guys are real young and I, I'm making the same observation. And I'm just wondering, it seems like the NFL has gone from age and wisdom being a factor with coaches to now, you know, everybody can't get that new 30 something year old hot coach in as their new head coach and their, or their new coordinator. Some guys are in their twenties now. And I mean, it's just, I, I find it, very interesting that we've kind of gotten away from wisdom being a part of the because th I think they, they don't feel like the old coaches understand the way offenses have changed in the last decade and all that. Maybe they just don't feel like, oh, they can deal with or, or, or know the intricacies of the newfangled offenses of the last decade that are relying much more on quarterbacks running the ball, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's an element to that. Um, but I also think just sports in general, but football specifically, it's, you know, so analytically driven now um, that, you know, just look at a guy like Bobby Slowick. He's 35 years old, obviously a very bright individual. And if you're going to be uh, in the comeuppance in any coaching regime in the NFL these days, a Shanahan, you could do far worse than coming up underneath him. Um, one of the more brilliant scheme systems minds in the game that we've seen, obviously with Kyle and his dad, uh, Mike. But, you know, he's a guy that took a couple of years off and went and worked at Pro Football Focus. And so, you know, he's he's kind of seen the defensive side of the ball when he'd first come up in coaching, the offensive side of the ball, which, you know, attracted him. But being a coach in the booth, on the field, and now looking at it from an analytical standpoint, I think coaching – you know, nowadays the the allure is 
being able to see, view the game from various angles. You know, I, I can't recall, you know, more so in the last five, seven years than really the last couple, where we're seeing coaches hired that have experience, you know, albeit marginal, but experience on both sides of the ball. I think there is an extreme value placed on guys that are able to see the game from a defensive lens, but that coach offense and vice versa, but then also be able to use quite handily the analytical part of the game. And I don't know if those old heads, you know, the guys with all that wisdom um, just simply can't do it anymore. I just think when you've been coaching Robert for 20, 30, 40 years, you're around the game for that long. It's really hard to break old habits and you tend to go with what you know and coach how you've been coached. Um, and that transition is very difficult to today's player, to today's organization and the way that these front offices might be structured now. Yeah, you and I talked about it just uh, in the last couple of weeks about maybe Gary Kubiak coming back and maybe that's somebody that they can bring in with some experience and an old school veteran, something, somebody like that to help out with the Texans offense. But also it was interesting to see this week that Dom Capers has gone full circle because Remember, Dom Capers took the Carolina Panthers to an NFC championship game, and then he lost the job in Carolina. He became the Texans' very first coach, and now he's back as an assistant, still rolling on in his 70s. He's a defensive uh, assistant with the Carolina Panthers, and he shows up, and he's got the uh, same exact color hair. That, that got a lot of attention on Twitter. but <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but I heard people talking about it. Yeah. Like, what are you see- doing, Dom? Good to see Dom back, though, that's for sure. You know, he's a guy that, um, look, he was the first coach, and what was he here with the Houston Texans for six years, I believe? No, no, it wasn't even that. He, he By and the time Kub- Kubiak came in, and it was uh, two, it was around 2006. And- 2006, you're right. So, yeah, Dom was here for four years, and then Kubiak took over in 2006, and Kubiak was here for eight years, and then it's kind of been boom, boom, boom. Yeah, I think um, Dom was thought of it here for – for some people, they might have thought of him as not the best coach in the world. Yeah. But to me, I put the blame on those first four years. Just awful drafts by Casserly. Just yeah, terrible. The drafts, the, the, the drafts, certainly. But I want to say, wasn't it under Capers in which they decided to – now, maybe it was the transition because I think that was uh, to look at a head coach. The transition between Capers and Kubiak when they brought in Dan Reeves for a consultant, you know, I yeah. guess to try and find – right. But my point about, uh, you know, bringing all that up was, um, you know, Capers obviously soured here, you know, was let go after four seasons. But I don't remember where he went after that. I just remember watching the Green Bay Packers for years as him up in the booth as a defensive coordinator for them. And it was like, you know, the Green Bay Packers, like, you know, think Dom Capers can obviously still bring value uh, to a football team, to a defense. And we talk all the time and most recently about a guy like Bill O'Brien who, okay, obviously, you know, flamed out as a head coach, but it was really what he was doing from a front office standpoint, acting as a general manager and too big for his britches in that regard. But, you know, he's good, solid offensive coordinator, offensive mind, you know, yeah, you, you and I, you and I disagree on that. You and me and Alabama fans and you disagree on it. And we'll see how the Patriots fans. That's fine, but you know, disagree or not. I mean, my the main point is, you know, some guys just simply aren't cut out to be a head coach, but rather they're really good coordinators, offensive, defensive, whatever the case may be. 
And that's fine. Some guys just absolutely fall in love with coaching position groups. And that's fine, too. There are a lot of those guys in the NFL that, you know what, they're there and they're happy to be there. And they see themselves bouncing around, seeing the sights, living in different cities for the next 20, 30 years with no aspirations of becoming a coordinator one day. And that's fine. You're a great corner coach. You're a great O-line coach. There's a bunch of them out there, and I think Capers is just kind of one of those guys. But you know what? He's settled in. He's a really good defensive analyst, good defensive coordinator, and, uh, you know, hey, good for him that he's still hanging on and grinding, you know, at the age of uh, 70-something or whatever it is. Yeah, a great guy, too. I mean, just like like Gary Kubiak. Everybody talks about what a great guy Gary Kubiak was, but Dom, one of the nicest guys in the business. I was going to more or less really say something. Um, Well, first ask you, where did – Clint Kubiak get a job because he was early reported to get a job here with Houston. That obviously didn't happen. It ended up with the 49ers actually. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. 49ers. So I was going to ask you, Gary Kubiak is probably going to split some time between San Francisco and Houston in terms of a quote unquote consultant, you know, to his son as an offensive coach over there. And maybe to D'Amico, a guy who, Gary obviously loves, respects, wants to see do well, and even said, you know, the day after D'Amico was announced or introduced uh, to the city of Houston as their new head coach, like, absolutely, I want to be a resource. I want to be there. I want to help him. I mean, that's going to be kind of – it's going to be an interesting, you know, year for Gary Kubiak potentially, maybe a very busy one. He can finally take a break from the uh, tractor and the lawnmower on his farm and get back to uh, looking at uh, some football. Yeah, I have a feeling he doesn't go very far away, especially with his two kids being in the NFL the last few years, too. Yeah. Um, and, and we still I don't know if we've heard anything unless I missed it from his other son, Clay Kubiak, who was in the 49ers organization, was rumored to maybe be coming to Houston. But it should be interesting to see. Uh, let's get out of here. But uh, you and I will catch up again on Monday. We'll talk a little bit about, you know, what, what we're going to do with this Lance McCullers and some depth in the Astros starting rotation, but uh, looking forward to that. Looking forward to another, is there another rough? There's gotta be another rough next game this weekend, right? Yeah, I'm sure there's another rough next game. And uh, oh yeah, by the way, them Cougs, man, only three more regular season games left before conference tournament time and March Madness right around the corner. Pumped up for that. Oh, I'm ready for it. Let's go. Let's do it again on Monday. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Touchdown!